So let me pray, and then we'll explore it together. Father, there's uh, so many ways in which uh, we can feel like we're in an ark on a, on a sea of, of, of waters. Um, in this narrative that has been given to us for so long ago, um, the waters are the rising floods of your just wrath against sin and stubbornness, and yet you, by grace, lifted a family up above uh, the waters, and you, you opened a window for Noah and asked him to look out and receive the promises that you've made. And so we tonight look through the same door by faith at something yet unseen, and we claim the promises our own, and we do so in a way that we pray will transform our lives for Christ's sake. Amen. So tonight's our creative service, and we're offering you a new set of eyes to look through a window uh, in the arc of, of this pain. A new set of eyes, not just, of course, what you see here, but rather to open the eyes of your heart. Who knew your heart had eyes? Ephesians chapter 1. So we're offering a new set of eyes, not the old set of eyes that sees only pain and suffering in our world and get o gets overwhelmed by it. Not the old set of eyes that sees this world going to pot, <laughs> Uh, or perhaps uh, you feel only guilt and despair and the rising waters of worse to come, but rather new eyes that look for the promises of God and then feasts on them and then is nourished by them through life and work. This is about a new set of eyes that looks for, like purposefully and intentionally looks for, the leaf in the mouth of the dove. I'll explain that in a moment. Well, I'll explain it now. My text tonight is Genesis chapter 8, verse 10. In your zine, it's on page 7. Noah waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. And Noah knew in that moment that the water had receded from the earth. Now, this new set of eyes is not about blind optimism. I'm done with blind optimism. When I meet blind optimists, I say, that's nice and that's a positive contribution, but why do you believe that? This is not about a sunny disposition with no cause for such. Monty Python was mocking us when they thought that the cross meant that you should always look on the bright side of life. And this is not the English stiff upper lip, nor the Australian she'll be right, nor the American chin up son. This, these new eyes are about wholly claiming in your heart, deep in your heart, the external promises of God, inwardly transforming our lives for a renewed world forged by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're in the middle of a series called Six Rules for Work and Life, not in the sense of rules to be obeyed, but rather principles that make sense of what you do. And today we're in the second part of Noah's story, and next week the third part Tonight is, in fact, the good news, and the rule for life and work is to look for leaf in the, fight, in, the, in the mouth of the dove. Now, you'll know that each week during Lent, we're asking the same three questions and answering them, and they're on page 10 of your orders of service. What's the narrative that mirrors life? How's it fulfilled in Jesus, who gives life, and what's the rule for work and living? What, how would it make a difference now? So, firstly... What's the narrative? Well, the context of chapter 8 of Genesis is this promised flood. This mighty, powerful, overwhelming, dark, terrible, and yet cleansing flood 
promised in chapter 6, and then Noah lifted above the deluge in chapter 7. Chapter 8 is pretty simple as a narrative. We're not going into the history or the science of it. We could do that if we'd like to, and I've got three proposals for those of you who are troubled by the science or the history of it, and there's many ways to look at it. And if you'd like to email me, I'd love to interact with you on that. I've got a little Venn diagram that I think might really genuinely help you. But what we're doing instead is just reading the narrative as it is and asking ourselves how might it, you know, this, this narrative has been around for millennia and it's instructed people in the ways of, like, my children, for example, understand this story. They get it more than adults do, like what it's actually meant to mean. Chapter 8 is pretty simple and involves God remembering Noah there in the flood. The first part of chapter 8 is about the waters receding in verses 1 through 5. Did you notice that? The waters receded, the waters receded. And so you've got this moment for Noah where he's in between the flood and the restoration of the earth. He's creaking back and forth, not knowing what's next, believing the promises of God, a covenant made with him. It requires patience to live in that world. The first part is the floods receding. But the waters are still there. And so the second part is the little window in verses 6 through 14. In verse 6, after 40 days, Noah opened a window that he'd made in the ark. The ark, by the way, is not a box with a little, you know, not a boat with a little deck where you can sort of enjoy the sunshine. It's a box. And he's made a little hole in the box. I love that image, by the way, of a little window. The flood's still abundant. What do I see? Through the little window. Through the little window, he sent a raven who never came back. And the the commentators say that he's off to find um, dead animals in the water. So he sends, in verse 8, a dove to see if the waters have receded from the face of the earth. Is there anything there left? And then in verses 6 through 14, you get this slowing up of the text. One commentator wrote this, The 40 days of the universal deluge are described quickly. The 150 days of the earth being submerged are simply stated. A bit like the death of Jesus narratives in the Gospels. Not really there to pluck your heartstrings. Just simply stated. The commentator goes on, what went on outside the flood is noted. What went on inside the flood is not even mentioned, except that he opened a window. But what comes, but when it comes time for Noah to leave, the chronology slows to a remarkable pace. Why? What are we meant to learn? In verse 9, he sends out a dove, the dove returns, since it found nowhere to perch, we're told. And I love this, by the way, through the window, Noah reached out his hand and he took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. It's so tender. Verse 10, he waited seven more days and again he sent the dove from the ark. Then our text this morning, then the dove returned to him in the evening. And there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So this olive branch is far enough away for a dove to fly in the morning and be back in the evening. And then Noah is, by the way, resting this leaf from the dove's mouth. And there he is staring. Right. A single leaf. A single leaf. 
And all around him is water, water, water everywhere, a deluge of it. But in this leaf, Noah sees a gospel. A gospel. Good news is exactly what he sees. God had kept his promise. Noah, <laughs> but the, the promise being kept is yet unseen, but he's got evidence of it. Right. Proof that the water had receded from the earth. Then he waited seven more days, verse 12. He sent the dove out again, but this time he did not return to him. The dove was gone, like a child fleeing the home, you know, not to return. Parents can say, okay, off he's gone. He's going to start his life on his own. But with the, if I can put it this way, the empty dove is the knowledge for Noah that land exists, olive trees. The earth can support life again. The resurrection is complete. And the last bit of that chapter is uh, this promise of the renewed earth. Verse 15, God said to Noah, come out of the ark, right? You and the animals, that you can be fruitful and multiply. And you've got this restart of the earth once again. And so they obeyed God and came out, verse 18. And Noah, we heard a moment ago, built an altar in verse 20 and sacrificed some of the clean animals. And God smelt the aroma of it. <laughs> like the Father smells the aroma Roma of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, and it's pleasing to him. You get this commitment from God to tend to his creation. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said, in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of humans. Even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. You can learn that next week. Never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done, as long as the earth endures Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. Good news. So secondly, how is this narrative fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who lived and died and rose again and gives me life? I love that image, by the way. The dove returns in the evening, and there, in its beak, was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Here's one of the simpler and beautiful, more beautiful pictures that you'll ever hear. It's the first sign of the restarting of God's creative purposes and process in his world. It's a reboot, if you will, of the world. Trees and plants are growing again. Now, that leaf is never mentioned again in the Bible, although olive branches are everywhere as signs of the blessing of God. But the leaf is for Noah a foreshadow a taste of something to come, a beautiful thing that gets his eyes off the flood and onto the thing yet unseen, which is the promises of God. Life back on earth. It's small. It may look tiny and meaningless, and yet it's concrete evidence that life is coming. Well, that idea the New Testament is strong on. The idea of one smallest thing as a foretaste of something bigger to come. And namely it's this, Jesus' resurrection, that empty tomb, not a dove flying off, but Christ risen from the dead, is a foretaste of a future to come. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 15 when he wrote to the Christians in Corinth in ancient Turkey, in Greece, ancient Greece, and he writes, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, he says, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Any farmer will tell you 
that if uh, a crop comes, all the fruit comes out at the same time, the farmer comes along and says the, the fruit looks ripe, and he takes one piece of fruit, and he takes a bite of it, you know, slices right in and sees if it's juicy and ripe and beautiful. And then he could look out across the entire crop and say, basically, it's the same for them as for this first fruit. Christ is like the first fruits of anybody who's already died. The fruit ahead of the harvest, the leaf in the mouth of the dove. And therefore, the future in Christ is bright. Apostle Paul goes on, each in his own term, turn, Christ, the first fruits, the leaf, and then when Christ comes, those who belong to him. Then, says Paul, the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God the Father to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, every evil, every injustice that is opposed to him. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet, a promise that was offered originally to the first man, Adam, but now coming in the second man, Jesus Christ. And we just discover that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death, of course, is the ultimate flood that we'll all experience. But the Apostle Paul says, because Christ is risen from the dead, that sting is no longer alive which means you can confidently live today and even die tomorrow knowing that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and he must reign and he will reign until all enemies under, are under his feet. The last one to be destroyed is death itself. Now you and I live in a world of death, of sin and of rebellion and of rising floodwaters. But Christ has been risen from the dead so I'm going to open up a window and I'm going to look out that window, and I will look to him, and I know my future. To quote author Jared Wilson, and God's plan isn't simply to evacuate them off this cursed earth and into heaven, it's not just a flight from earth, but rather to bring a flood of heaven, a flood of glory to earth, to restore it. He will vanquish the curse, this is good news, the flood of sin will be dried up and peace and justice will reign and so will we in a restored creation. Paul writes in Ephesians also that the Spirit of God given to us is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance to come. And so now in this broken and divided world, sinful as we are, we'll get to that next week, we are flooded personally by God's Spirit ahead of the day when, he, when the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Amen? So what's the rule for life? How can it change your work and life now? Well, I want to urge you every day and every hour to look for the leaf in the mouth of the dove. I want this to be a mantra for you, and I want you to learn to do it over an hour and then a day and then a week and then a month and then a year, and then two years, and I submit to you, if you can learn to do this, look for the leaf in the mouth of the dove, over a period of two years, it'll be habit for you. I want you to open that window tonight, and then look for the moments, 
that God tells you that the future in Christ is necessarily bright, not because of optimism, but because of the promise of God and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, this is important if your work, for example, is flooded with pain or boredom or frustration. And I'm interacting with you over this series, connecting the dots between Sunday and Monday, and some of you are telling me, what if you do, the job you do is, is, is boring and repetitive and it doesn't pay right, but you feel stuck because there's nothing that you can do and that's going to require a lot of help, a lot of prayers. We've got community groups that help you. You might need to seek advice. Um, you know, we live in a society where some things can be done sometimes and that's a delight, but for some of us it doesn't feel that way. Well, this is perhaps a way forward for you. Three ways to do this, to look for the leaf in the mouth of the dove. Firstly, open the window and look to the cross of Jesus Christ in the flood, the overwhelming flood of human guilt. Look to the cross of Jesus Christ as the leaf in the mouth of the dove. The waters of God's just judgment on sin have subsided in Christ. The wrath is over and the blessings have begun. The cross of Jesus Christ small as it looks to most people in Australia. And yet, eternal proof that no matter how deep the waters get, our condemnation has been taken by Christ and removed forever. The big things are taken care of. That's why Paul can speak to slaves and say, your future is bright, and it transforms the way they worked then. Second, not only look out the window to the death of Jesus Christ, look out the window at the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the flood of suffering. The resurrection as the leaf in the mouth of the dove. It looks small to most people in Australia and meaningless. An empty tomb, a woman crying, have taken my Lord away, and an angel telling the disciples that he is not here, he is risen. But that empty tomb lit a fire of hope in not just the 12 disciples nor the 150 that were in the upper room that day or the 500 that saw him risen from the dead, as it says in 1 Corinthians, but it lit fires of hope all around the ancient world such that within 400 years, 400 million people believed that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead and Lord of all. And therefore I could face life and death with hope. We need to remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ as gospel hope for my body. Decaying as it is, it will be restored and in a restored creation through the work of Christ. And we need to remember this every day because life is not easy. Some of us look around like Noah, perhaps out that window at the floods and we see only the raging torrent, no horizon, Simply the grey seas meeting the grey skies. And our eyes see only water rising. And we feel lost and perhaps adrift, hopelessly tossed on the endless current of murky chaos. Psalm 61 verse 1 in the King James Version is one of my favourite psalms. It goes like this, Save me, O God, for the waters have come into my soul. I'm overwhelmed with pain. I didn't have this in my notes, but if you go down to the garrison church down in the rocks, on the northern wall is a stained glass window called 
the Somerville window, and I want you to go down and have a look at it sometime. It was put together by the parents of William George Somerville after they lost him in a shipwreck in 1876, age 26, off the Yarra Yarra, off Stockton Beach in Newcastle. Apparently, you can scuba dive the Yarra Yarra even today, and I'm willing, if you're willing, to, if it's possible, I don't know if it's possible, somebody Google it later, I'm willing, if you're willing, to go and scuba dive the Yarra Yarra as a, as a, as a gospel thing. They put this window up, and right at the very bottom, in small writing, is Psalm 69, verse 1. Parents put this up. Save me, O God, for the waters are come into my soul. I am in grief at the loss of my son. And yet the two pictures that are in the stained glass window, high in the stained glass window, are Christ calming the storm and Jesus Christ walking on water. Two separate events in the Gospels, both leaves in the mouths of a dove, both saying that in the storm, he is Lord, Lord of all. In the resurrection, we catch a glimpse of our future, something that at first glance doesn't look like very much. Look for the leaf in the mouth of the dove. And thirdly, and finally, and perhaps most importantly, not most importantly because, most importantly because it's the one we forget. What I want you to do is look for evidences of God's grace in life now, in work now, in your relationships now. Look for moments where you say, that's the future of our world because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, for example, when you see an act of humility at work in a sea of arrogance, close your eyes and say, that's the future because the future of the world is humble because that comes from the heart of God. When you see an act of kindness or sacrifice, when you see an act of generosity in a culture stripped of grace, look at social media, then say to yourself, I'm looking through a glass darkly as a leaf ahead of a harvest. I'm looking at the new heavens and the new earth, an embrace, a welcome. When you see someone obeying God at cost to self in a world that disregards his word, you say to yourself, his righteousness will reign. When you see the touch of God's healing hand, even if on occasion, say to yourself, that is my future, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. When you see a married couple respond to repair attempts in their marriage, you say to yourself, reconciliation is the future. I know it because of Jesus. And quite frankly, when you taste good food, experience good art, have good, healthy fun, see a healthy industry at work, you know that God loves his creation. Look for it every day. Misattributed to Martin Luther is this quote, our Lord has written the promise of resurrection, not in books alone, but in every leaf in the springtime. Consider the lilies of the field. And this needs to be all day and every day until it's a habit, until it's no longer criticism and negativity because all we see is flood, but hope and joy even in the flood because all day, every day, we see evidences of God's kindness. G.K. Chesterton said this, you say grace before meals, all right. 
But I say grace before the concert and the opera, and grace before the play and the pantomime, and grace before I open a book, and grace before sketching and painting and swimming and fencing and boxing and walking and playing and dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in ink. You artists. This is about seeing the good that God has promised. It's not about optimism. This, I, I assure you. I can see someone coming up to me afterwards and saying, oh, that's good, I don't believe in God, but I'm an optimist too. This is not about optimism. Every time I see an optimist, I think, well, that's nice, but I wonder why they believe they have the right to be optimistic about it, except for blind faith, ironically. Nor is this about the psychology of thankfulness so hot right now. And I'm all for thankfulness to God. But rather, it's about those things, but it's about seeing the good things that God's promised and a future. I read a story once of a prisoner in a Nazi concentration camp who looked out over the death and the mud and the foulness of his imprisonment. In many ways, the mud represented how people felt. There was no beauty in that place, a little bit like an overwhelming flood. But then he saw a single, beautiful, sweet flower growing in the middle of the muddy camp. Like life will have its way. Life in the midst of all the death. And he looked at that plant and he, he decided in that moment, if this small thing could come out of so much death, then perhaps there was hope. Well, a follower of Jesus Christ doesn't say perhaps there is hope. A follower of Jesus Christ, she is sure of that hope. He is convinced of it, even in our weakness. We'll come to that next week. Jesus, for a Christian, is the shoot of life in the midst of the muddy camp, midst of death. The first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. The one who experienced suffering so that I could experience life. That's why you can have joy in suffering, not mere happiness. It's not about having chin up, but rather leaning on the promises of God and their glimpses in the flood, in the flood. We need to learn again to look for the leaf in the mouth of the dove. Amen. I'm going to pray and then give you an opportunity to respond, and you could do that in many ways. One of them could be actually to write on that card. I want you to pull that card out and grab a pen that's at the end of the pew or somebody's handbag, and you could start writing now. You know, here's a thought. You could even respond with a prayer in it. You don't have to put your name on it. Love your name on it, but you don't have to put your name on it. And pop a prayer in the back. That'd be in a response or a question or a comment or even some feedback for the creative team. They'd love to hear that too. But I want to give you an opportunity also to pray. So have a think now. Are you someone who wants to pray here? I'm going to walk down this aisle and give you the microphone if that's something you'd like to do. So I'm going to begin if you don't mind. Father, Jesus Christ is our hope. Um, insignificant as his death was, small in appearance as that empty tomb was, he in fact is our hope, proof that there's life on the other side, even of death, first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. But Father, Father, help us each day to look for evidence of your mercy, of your promise. Even as life is difficult and work might be tough, help us to see moments of joy 
granted by you that we witness and can see your good hand and the future you have prepared. But even if we find it hard to see, maybe some of us, the waters have come into our souls and we find it hard to see above the floods and the horizon of pain. Help us then, even as Habakkuk said, to say, though the fig tree does not blossom and there's no fruit on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields yield no food, yet I'll rejoice in the Lord. He makes my feet like the feet of the deer and he takes me to the heights. Take our feet to the heights, Father, for Christ's sake. We pray this in his name. Amen.